I was, we were talking about this before uh, worship rehearsal. You know, the, the NBC commentators are so U.S.-centric, and they keep talking the big buildup of the, the U.S. team is going to come in. There's over 500 athletes, and the U.S. has more gold medals than any country in history and all this stuff. I was, I was actually, having just gotten home from Nicaragua, I was waiting for the Nicaragua team to watch, walk in. I was excited to see them come in. I really was. I was watching for them. You know, it's alphabetical, so I'm going to come up. So the, the Nicaragua delegates come in. Six athletes strong. Six athletes strong. Uh, Nicaragua, you know, I was thinking Michael Phelps. How many medals does Phelps have? 16, 14. I know. The one guy's got however many medals he has. Nicaragua collectively has never won a medal in any event in the Olympics. They have, they have no medals. Um, the closest they ever came, 1996, uh, the baseball team, they, they put a baseball team in the Olympics in 96, and they took fourth place. They got into the medal round and lost. But that's the closest Nicaragua has ever come to winning a medal. Baseball is the, is the national sport there, even beyond soccer. All Latin American teams love soccer. Nicaragua loves baseball. So anyway, I'm watching the six athletes from Nicaragua walk in, waving their flag. And, and I'm just, I noticed, look, there's six of them, right? And, and they, not only have they never won a medal, at least from being as kind as I can be in this current Olympics, I don't think they have any chance of winning a medal, okay? Um, but what I noticed is how excited and how happy they were to be there, and they were smiling and waving their flag every bit as much as the U.S. and, you know, all the superpower teams. And it just, it touched me, and it made me think about uh, Nicaragua and my friends there, because that's how they live their life, is with the joy of the Lord. And they're just, they're just full of expectation, regardless of circumstance and situation. So, Tonight, I, I want to I talk to you about, uh, about Nicaragua I, I, and my trip. Not only my trip there, but I want to kind of review our purpose, why I go to Nicaragua, why we go to Nicaragua, why we're involved there, uh, how you can get involved there, and a little bit of history of that. So some of this might be uh, repeat information for some of you, but I know many of you are, are, are new enough here that maybe you don't know how our missions program works and what we do there. So that's what I want to do tonight. So let's, let's pray real quick, and then uh, we'll talk about this trip and about Nicaragua and what's happening there. Lord, thanks so much. Uh, it, 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 is, it is humbling to me to see uh, the joy on those athletes' faces and to see the joy in the hearts of my friends in Nicaragua and the way that uh, they continually uh, look to you and reach out to you despite whatever situation or circumstance they may be in. And I just ask that uh, you would give us that, that same sense of, of joy and expectation for you to, to be with us, to move upon us, and to prosper us, and to give us uh, your peace and your, your power, your presence in all things, in all places, at all times. So would you open our hearts to receive tonight, Lord, and just uh, uh, remind us that uh, we're part of your kingdom that transcends borders and nations and races and ethnic groups and economies and social status and gender and everything else, that your kingdom uh, extends beyond all those borders and all those boundaries into the hearts and lives of your people, wherever they might be. Uh, 
across this world. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to review a little bit. First of all, for those of you that don't know, really quickly, there's a map of Nicaragua. Nicaragua is the largest country in Central America. It's right in the middle. Honduras to the north, Costa Rica to the south. So if you can kind of picture the map, El Salvador, Guatemala, Belize is hanging out up here, Costa Rica, and then Panama down at the bottom. Um, Nicaragua is, you know, in terms of size, it's roughly the size and shape of the state of New York. And so in terms of actual square miles, uh, it's almost exactly half of Oregon. Okay, that's how big it is. It's about half of Oregon. Uh, population of right at 6 million right now. Um, although it's, you know, the biggest country in Central America, still a fairly small country, uh, you know, in context, uh, has two coastlines that run the whole length of the country. So it's, it's, it is bordered on the east by the Caribbean and on the west, of course, by the Pacific. has also two very notable um, bodies of freshwater. Lake Managua is the smaller blue dot you see there, uh, and the, the capital city of Managua is on the shore of that lake. Lake Managua is completely, totally polluted. People actually do go in there, but I pray for them because it really is. It's had generations of both sewage and industrial waste dumped into the lake, and it's very, 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 very polluted. Lake Nicaragua, on the other hand, is a larger body of water. Uh, it's the big blue dot in the middle. It's 100 miles long and is still quite clean and pristine and beautiful. There's a dot in the middle. You can see there's an island in the middle, Ometepe Island. It's made of two volcanoes, and back in, I think, 2007 or 2008, thank you very much, I climbed one of those volcanoes, and I live to tell about it. So there you go. Um, so, so that's kind of the uh, you know the rough sketch, really rough sketch of, uh, of of Nicaragua. I'll give you a little more history and things as we go a little bit. But what I want to talk about tonight is our involvement there. And Vineyard Missions is organized in what we call partnerships. And I will define partnership for you a little bit as we go. But uh, let me just say this in terms of our involvement as a church. Uh, I made my first trip. Bubba King went with me back in 2004. And we went to take a look and see. I, as a pastor, wanted our church to be involved in international missions. Um, I, I had been in ministry for years, been in youth ministry for years, and grew up as a teenager in a, in a uh, youth group that did missions trips. And I had seen and felt and known the benefit of that kind of ministry. And so I was, I was very, uh, I very much wanted our church to be involved. I had some very practical reasons for Nicaragua. One, there were a couple other churches in the Northwest. The Vineyard Church is already involved there, so it was easy. Two, it's fairly close by, comparatively, to a lot of places that we might go. So it's pretty quick, easy, and uh, less costly to get there than other places we might be involved. So I thought that's a positive. I wanted, uh, my, my goal at the time was to get as many people involved and as many people on a trip as possible. Uh, so I thought that, that that is helpful, that it doesn't take three days to get there and doesn't cost $5,000 in airfare. Uh, the other thing is the language barrier. Spanish, in my mind, was probably the lowest possible language barrier that we could have. So I, uh, I decided that uh, you know, it was, a, practically speaking, a good choice to get involved in Nicaragua. Uh, since that time, uh, so 2005, the partnership was, origi or was originally formed with three vineyard churches, us, Vancouver, and Mountain Vineyard up in Kent. And since then, I think 20 or 25 people from our 
congregation have gone with me at different times. And so somewhat successful there. Uh, I'm hoping to, to sort of renew that and, and uh, beginning this next year, take some, some more of you uh, with me again. So practically speaking, that, that's why um, I, I wanted to get us involved in missions, and I, I thought Nicaragua seemed like a good choice. But spiritually speaking, some things happened to me. I, I went in 04, uh, went back twice in 05, I believe, and began going with teams. And one of the things that uh, hap- happened was this. Let me just, you guys are very familiar with the passage. It's Jesus in the temple at the beginning, kind of the, you know, his inaugural address, if you will, the beginning of his ministry. Um, Jesus says, of course, he's reading, you know, the scroll of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um... We have a, a desire and a heart in our fellowship to reach out to the poor and to care for the poor. Uh, we talked about it. We're doing a school supply drive. We do food ministry every week. We do other things. Um, you hear from time to time terms like the poorest of the poor. And I had been in, uh, I've been in Mexico where our youth go, I don't know, maybe 100 times been to South Africa, been to other countries that have impoverished populations in them. Uh, Nicaragua is the poorest country in all of Latin America. It's the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Only Haiti has a higher level of poverty than Nicaragua. And I, I began to be stirred in my heart over the condition of the country. Uh, something that you will only know if you've I read, I get updates, Google updates on Nicaragua. You kind of read the news. But the term Nicaraguan is actually used as a slur by other Latin Americans, other Central Americans. So when they say somebody like their friends might say, oh, you're a Nicaraguan, that's like you're, you're kind of worthless. You're really not up to snuff. You're, you're nothing. They are a people who have lived, in my mind, uh, under the weight of poverty and the weight of oppression. Jesus also said here that he came to set the oppressed free. And Nicaragua has been really an oppressed people uh, for the last 500 years. I began to read a little bit, study a little bit of the history of the country. Uh, Nicaragua was, uh, has been kind of under the hand of oppression, dating back to the Spanish conquistadors who, who came and kind of conquered and took parts of the territory for their country. Uh, later on, they were oppressed, uh, especially in the last uh, 100 to 120 years or so, uh, by their own um, corrupt leadership and governments. They've been, had been under one corrupt government after another, after another, after another, really a succession dating all the way back to uh, really the early, early 1900s. They, they also at times, and here's something that, you know, I suppose move my heart with desire to, to reach out there as much as anything goes. Some of that oppression has come at the hands of the United States. And there have been multiple times in our history when we have, in different ways, um, been less than gracious towards Nicaragua as a country. Uh, one of those times, you, you guys may or may not know the history of 
uh, in Nicaragua, 1856, shortly after the Civil War, a guy named William Walker. Anybody ever heard of William Walker? Not William Wallace, William Walker. was an American, um, he was a lawyer and an adventurer and a megalomaniac. And he didn't, he wanted to, his, his goal was to go to Latin America and take over portions of Latin America and convert them to slave states because he didn't like what was happening here. That was his plan. He was funded by Cornelis Vanderbilt. You know, Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt, the, the rich guy. Now, Vanderbilt wasn't funding him to go take over parts of Central America and make them slave states. Vanderbilt was financing him to go and develop a route from the East Coast to the West Coast, which at the time, the Intercontinental Railroad had not been completed, and neither had the Panama Canal. So there was no way to get from New York to California except go all the way around South America. So what... Walker, what Vanderbilt contracted Walker to do was to go and develop a route that would take boats down the Atlantic into Rio del Sur, which is a, the river there on the east coast, up into Lake Nicaragua, ac across Lake Nicaragua. And then there's a very short, it's, it's only, I think, uh, eight or nine mile portage from the left side, the west side of the lake, into the Pacific. And so that's what he was supposed to be doing. Uh, with the money from Vanderbilt, but what he was in fact doing was trying to conquer Latin American countries. So, he, so Walker came into Nicaragua. He hired 300 mercenaries and marched up on the capital and actually took over Nicaragua, set himself up as president. He was that was later acknowledged by the United States that okay, we have this, we now have this territory in Central America, and William Walker is the president of that. Of course, it didn't take very long for the Nicaraguans to say, wait a minute, this isn't going to work. So they uh, went into war with him. There was, there was that ensued. And eventually, they ran Walker out of Nicaragua, but not before he burned the capital city of Granada to the ground. It was a beautiful, beautiful colonial city, and, and he burned it. So, y you know, that's a little bit of ancient history, I suppose, but just one way you might uh, realize how we haven't always been th the best of neighbors. Um, some of you... Yeah, anybody that's <clears throat> my age, and maybe even some of you younger folk that have studied history will remember back in the 1980s during the Reagan administration something called the Iran-Contra scandal. And to refresh your memory, the United States was, was selling weapons illegally to Iran. Of course, that money was off the books, so they couldn't channel it directly through the, the normal uh, budget. So what that money was then used for was to fund a guerrilla war in Nicaragua. And the reason was that the Sandinistas, who were essentially in, in cahoots with Cuba and Russia, the communist government within driving distance of the United States, the U.S. didn't like that. So the, the Sandinistas were called themselves revolutionaries. They took over the government. Contra is counter. The Contras were counter-revolutionaries. They essentially were a guerrilla army funded by the Reagan administration to take the government back. What ended up happening, though, was a civil war. And so if you have read any history of the American Civil War, you know that there were brothers fighting against brothers and that it was the most uh, tragic and terrible, really, time in, in our history and darkest time in our history as a country. Well, that same dynamic held true in Nicaragua. Um, it was a civil war that decimated that country. It was funded by the United States. And um, so that, of course, again, is something that causes my heart to say, hey, is there a way that we can uh, 
not only seek forgiveness, but seek to extend the kingdom of God in love to these people. In addition to those sorts of oppressive things that have taken place, and there's a lot, lot more. I'm not going to take the time to go into it all tonight, but there's a lot. A couple, a couple historical events happened in Nicaragua. In 1972, uh, 6.2 earthquake hit Managua and leveled the city. Uh, we were talking about this earlier tonight, too. Building codes are not the same as here. Uh, so current construction is better than it was then, but in 72, the entire capital city was leveled. Um, because of the economy, there had never been rebuilt. So when you drive through what used to be downtown Managua, there are what were hotels and or high-rise, and not super high-rise, but, you know, four, five, six, seven-story office buildings that have been destroyed, again, 1972, and never rebuilt. And honestly, it looks like at times a scene from a movie. If you've ever watched, like, Escape from New York or one of those movies where there's these old ruined kind of buildings and there's graffiti on the sides. But then you look up in the windows and you see somebody's laundry hanging in the window and you see people looking out and you realize there are people living in those buildings. And there's some of them actually do have electricity, which is not a good thing because it's pirated electricity. They brought it in on their own. Uh, there's no running water, no plumbing, anything like that. But there are people living in those buildings. And then in addition to that, uh, more recently, in 1998, uh, you might remember Hurricane Mitch hit the east coast of the United States, but also hit the entire eastern seaboard. And Nicaragua, being a small and poor country, was devastated by Mitch. Uh, 4,000 people were killed in the country of Nicaragua, and over a billion dollars in damage was done. And again, the eastern part of the country is the poorest part. And I'll talk about our work there tonight a little bit as well. Um, but that has never been rebuilt. And the economy on the eastern seaboard, the Caribbean side of Nicaragua, has never recovered. They, there is no industry. There is no economy. And these folks uh, genuinely are, in many ways, uh, the poorest of the poor. So I tell you all that to say this, that here's this country that has been decimated by a civil war in recent history, not 100 years ago, but 30 years ago. Um, most of the adult male population was killed or wounded during that war. So now, you know, two generations or a generation and a half later, you really have a fatherless nation. Fatherless nation that has lost its way they currently deal with a huge teen pregnancy crisis. One in four births in Nicaragua to an unwed teenager. Um, they have obviously a, a poverty crisis, an education crisis. I, I'll, I'll say this, that good, bad, or otherwise, prior to the Sandinista overthrow in the 80s, the literacy rate in Nicaragua was 6%. It went up to 60% at that time, but has since dwindled back down. So there's an education crisis. There's a health care crisis. Um, we have a health care crisis. Um, but let me say this. You don't want to go to the hospital in Nicaragua. Uh, anyone that's traveling there, anyone that has any money at all that lives there, won't go to the hospital there. They leave and go to Costa Rica. But obviously, the vast majority of the population doesn't have that option, so they do. I have a friend, or had a friend, um, who four, five, six weeks ago had to have very, very, very routine surgery, went in for surgery, and things didn't go well, and he ended up dying in, in the hospital. Um, that could happen here, but 
it's more likely to happen. They're very, very unclean, unstable healthcare system. They have a, there's a water crisis, clean water crisis. I mentioned that uh, you know Lake Managua is completely polluted, but in the majority of the country, uh, you can't obviously drink the water. Uh, they're in addition to all those things, they really also have an identity crisis as they are looked down upon by their neighboring countries and, and uh, really don't know in many ways who they are in the world. I, back in 1982, I was in South Africa during apartheid, and I noticed how people would not look up at you. When you spoke to a black person, they would look down like this. And I'd never seen that level of oppression just on an individual's life before, but I've seen something that at least rivals that in Nicaragua in terms of the self-image, the identity crisis that many of the people there, especially the older people, are under. So in 2004 and 2005, when I was there, and I began to put all this information into the hopper, I thought, okay, here's a country that's half the size of the state we live in, has a population of six million people that's really under the thumb of the enemy. And the thought hit me, we could potentially be part of the transformation of a whole nation. It just hit me. It's like, this isn't a huge nation. It's not that big. There's not that many people here. We could really help see that yoke of oppression broken and see the kingdom of God expanded across the nation if we commit to being here. And so I had my practical reasons for wanting to be involved in Nicaragua, but I really felt like God said, you know, put your hand here. And so that's why we've been involved uh, since then. So I want to talk a little bit about our, our work there now. I mentioned earlier that Vineyard Missions is based on partnerships. Partnership is this. It's a group of churches that come together, focused on uh, one region, area, country, people group, and you kind of work together and pool your resources. There's some good things about that. Um, and this, by the way, what you're reading, if you're reading it, is off of the Vineyard Missions website. This is their kind of statement. A couple things I'll point out to you. In partnership, the total burden does not fall on one church, and the work in a target area does not fluctuate with the like of life of a single church. You can imagine how, you know, you, you go someplace on a mission trip, um, and maybe that's it. That's it. You're done. Or maybe you go back again. But if your church can't go, if our church, let's just say one year, we just we can't do it this year, we can't go, then the work doesn't continue. But when you have multiple churches working together, of course, that work is able to continue. In addition, you pull the resources. We have six churches currently involved in the Nicaragua Partnership. They're all small churches. None of them are very large, and none of them give a significant amount of money towards the partnership. But together, the money adds up. And so we've been able to do, a, do, do some really amazing things in terms of of helping further the work there by that. Uh, and obviously all the burden isn't on any one church. It's not all on us. I don't have to think, oh my gosh, we, we have to do this or Nicaragua you know, will suffer. No, it, it, we, we really do focus together. So it really is uh, a very, very cool dynamic. It's a blessing. It's a powerful approach, I believe, to, to missions. One of the things that uh, the partnership model is focused on. Vineyard, for those of you that don't know, and some of you do, some of you don't, is, has been from the beginning what we call a church planting movement. That's what we do. We plant churches. 
Um, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, John Wimber, believed that church planting was the most effective means of evangelism, also believed that when churches are planted in communities that something called a sociological term called redemption and lift happens, that the gospel goes forward, things improve, people are taken care of. So while many missions, organizations, and movements today are focused on either uh, social justice and or relief and development, and we do do those things, and I'll talk about that a little bit, our, our, our real focus, our primary motivation is church planting. We're trying to work with established local churches in Nicaragua and work with them to reach their communities. And some of the good things about that are that as those churches are established, they have the same value system we do, and they care about their communities, and we help them care about their communities. For example, uh, one of our churches in Managua has an ongoing food ministry program, very, very similar to ours. So if we went, we could feed people while we're there, but then we would leave. Well, we support them, and they feed people every week, all the time. It never stops. It carries on. They also have a church plant. We'll call it a church plant. I'll talk about it more in a little while. But really, it's a labor of love. This is the poor reaching the poor. There's a community called Tipitapa. It's a, a little town about oh, 15 minutes outside of Managua. And in what is a very, very, very poor community, the Managua Vineyard goes and does a church service every Sunday afternoon. So they have their service in the morning at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They go and set up in Tipitapa and do a church service there. They've been doing it every day, every Sunday, every week for three years. And pr predominantly, the congregation is children. The attendance at the Tipitapa Church on Sunday afternoons is about 60 to 70 children and about 10 to 15 adults. Of the 10 to 15 adults, anywhere from 12 to 14 are women mothers of those children, anywhere one, two, maybe three men. Uh, so it's largely, I mean, we call it a church plan, it's largely a children's ministry outreach to poor children that this poor church goes and does every week. And it's uh, just an amazing thing, that labor of love that they're doing. Um, in, in addition, so, so what I'm just sharing with you is why it's beneficial for us to work with existing churches and to help plant churches because the work continues on a regular basis. One of the things we did while we were there uh, last week was we met at the Managua Church, the La Vineyard Norte, the Vineyard, Vineyard North, and we, uh, we broke into teams of about three to four people per team with at least, at least one Spanish speaker per group. And we went, their church meets in a building that is on a very main, main street would be like being on 99. And we walked in these teams to every business up and down that road and in that whole community and went into the businesses and asked the business owners and or workers, which mostly it's the owners that's working, can we pray for your business? And uh, I, I don't know, with all the teams, I think in a period of a couple of hours we prayed for probably 70, I'm going to estimate, businesses. And of those, two said no. No, thank you. All the others said yes. We'd love you to pray for our business. So we prayed that God would bless their business, that their business would grow, that their business would prosper. And they all thanked us, some of them with tears in their eyes. And then we said, hey, is there anything else? Oh, yeah, by the way, pray for my health. Pray for my family. Pray for my daughter. Pray for my grandmother. And so we just went up and down the neighborhood praying for these businesses in that community. That's the kind of thing that can't happen if you're not connected to local churches. And so that's a part of 
what we do. So this is what our partnership exists for. The Nicaragua Partnership exists within the Vineyard Community of Churches to establish a self-sustaining vineyard church planting move in Nicaragua. The goal being that with time, that intentional, the internal movement will be governed and financed by the local churches in Nicaragua. Our desire is to partner with Nicaraguan leaders and come alongside in support of local leadership of this hand. So that's what we're doing. We're, we're really working with churches to plant churches. And I'll share with you in a moment how that's going. It's going quite well. Our churches there are planting churches. All of the current leadership, uh, all of, when I say that, all of the senior pastors of the, of the churches we have in Nicaragua now are local Nicaraguan people that God has raised up. That may change in the future, and I'll, I'll explain that to you in a minute, but right now it is. So let me show you who we're working with. This is, a, this is about a year outdated. I know you can't see it very well, but I'll kind of point out to you <coughs> that the lower uh, arrow there on the east coast it's so our church in Bluefields, beautiful, beautiful church, beautiful people. The Caribbean coast, by the way, um, is Caribbean. And so the, the people there, English is the first language. They're black. They're not Hispanic. Uh, they speak Spanish. And they also speak Creole. It's, you know, Creole. And it has sort of that kind of Caribbean laid-back sort of uh, atmosphere to it. It's very beautiful, but also, again, very, very poor in that... Uh, the East Coast is landlocked in the sense that you can't get there from here. There's no road across the country. The mountain range runs right down the middle. You, it's, it can't drive from the west, from Managua to the east, to Bluefields. You can only get there by airplane or by boat. So there's no industry. The fishing industry has basically um, not been able to sustain because of the pollution in the bay. Uh, they do go out and catch fish in the ocean, but by and large, it's been destroyed. So you can't get there from here. But we have a tremendous church there in the south. And then the little arrow at the top, Puerto Cabezas, they actually have adopted a church. There was an independent little uh, Pentecostal church in the north in a place called Puerto Cabezas. And the Bluefields Church, which, again, they're, 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 they're dirt poor. And they've adopted this little church in the north. And so a couple of years ago, an actually smaller hurricane hit the northern part of the country, uh, decimated Porta Cabezas. So immediately the Bluefields Church gathers up all the food and all the clothing and all the stuff they can get and gets in boats and goes up there to help them. And I mean, that's just the heart of these people. They got nothing, but they're going to go help their friends that are in worse shape than they are at the moment. Um, we did have a church in the coffee country up in the northern part of the country there in Hinotega. That church this last year uh, had to shut down because of uh, some internal problems and some fi- and financial reasons. We currently have two vineyards, very healthy vineyards in Managua, the capital city. Uh, both of those are planting churches right now. Uh, the Manat- one church is planting the tip- tippy-toppa plant that I talked to you about a moment ago. The other has a, a, a property up in a little community called La Concha that they're working to plant there. We also have, uh, we work with Arms of Love Children's Home in Hinotepe, and the Managua vineyard has recently uh, worked with developing a pastoral couple to go and plant a church there. So they will actually be beginning this next year their second church plant out of, out of their church. And then we also have a town on Ometepe Island that was planted by a vineyard in Costa Rica. And they, they, the Costa Rica church basically uh, works more directly with them. But they, So instead of planting in their own country, they cross the border and plant there. So those are the entities, the churches that we work with on the Nicaragua side right now. Uh, when we started in 05... Really, La Vigna Norte was the only church that we were working with. And so most of the growth that you see there, which, I mean, it's, it's 
not a lot, but it kind of is, <laughs> relatively speaking, as all happened since 2005. Uh, all those churches have started and been planted since then. On the U.S. side, basically, we started, I, I mentioned, uh, in 2005 with uh, Vancouver and Mountain Vineyard and ourselves. Since then, we've added Conroe Vineyard in Texas, Lake Charles Vineyard in Louisiana, and Providence Vineyard in Oregon. And then there's a couple, Preston and Kerry Kolb, out of the Conroe Vineyard that a year ago moved to Managua and are living there, working with the Managua Church. Currently, Preston is the youth pastor at that church. He also has, uh, by, by virtue of being bilingual, opened the door for a massive outreach in that he's teaching English not only to the people in the church, but to people in the community. So he has several groups of people that come into the church each week to take English lessons. I met some of these folks that are starting to connect with the church. So he's like a one-man outreach team just because he speaks English. Tremendous um, service, though, to that community to teach the people English. Uh, So Preston and Carrie are there, and then this year we will add Boise Vineyard to this list uh, at least and we will continue to grow from there. So those are the U.S. partnership churches. So you can see, again, Boise is a larger church, uh, but all these other churches are very small, um, and yet, collectively, we're able to do a lot more than any one of us could do individually. So that's where that's at. You know, the whole vineyard thing of doing what the Father is doing, it, it really is, a lot of our ministry is very rela- relational. We, we, people go, what did you do? Did you build something? Did you paint something? Well, sometimes we build, sometimes we paint. A lot of times we talk. Uh, we go, we, we hang out, we be friends, we share, we pray, we just spend time encouraging our leadership there and discerning what's God doing here. And that's been a big part of this, and that's why sometimes it seemed to move fairly slowly as, as you know, we're only there once or twice a year trying to really figure out what God's doing. But again... There's an opportunity to connect with other agencies. And what I found happen is this, that while our focus is on church planting, um, we have been able to partner with a number of different ministries that do different things uh, that help support what we're doing there. So let me share a little bit about that with you. I think you guys will find this uh, encouraging. Arms of Love is a children's home in Hinotepe. Um, the... It's very much like the orphanage that we work with in Mexico in that the, most of the children there are not uh, true orphans. They are either economic orphans, which means their families just don't have the money to take care of them, or they are victims of abuse that have been placed there by the state. So they grow up in the orphanage. Uh, Arms of Love is not a church, and it's not a vineyard entity, but the founder of Arms of Love, Robert Benson, attends a vineyard church in California. The international director of Arms of Love, Kim Fisher, attends the Year of the Rockies in Colorado. And the national directors, Javier and Elizabeth um, Sanchez, are actually the former worship leaders at La Vina Norte in Managua. So it's essentially a vineyard organization, even though it's not a vineyard organization. Um, vineyard teams use it as a base to do ministry that we do there all year long. And we have the opportunity then to work with the children of the orphanage as well as the churches. And this year we'll plant a church in that very community where they are, and we'll see even more growth happen there. Second on the list there is Effinger. Uh, Doug and Julie Effinger are a couple that have been full-time in Nicaragua for 10 years now. This year it's their 10th year. They are, their home church is Vancouver Vineyard, 
Um, <coughs> Doug and Julie do an amazing work. They're building a community center. They have uh, transition homes for young adults. So kids, after they graduate from high school, they work with very poor, uneducated children to disciple them, give them job skills, resume skills, interview skills, help them find work. It's amazing. We talked with these kids one night. It's one of the most amazing nights I've ever had, listening to these young people share their stories, where they came from, what they were doing. Um, Doug is an interesting guy. He's highly innovative. Does anybody know what hydroponics is? Okay, Doug is also doing hydroponics. So for those of you who don't know, you grow plants, you grow vegetables in shallow trays. You don't have dirt. There's no dirt. It's another, it's something else, typically gravel. So you're growing the vegetables in gravel. The trays are above tanks. The tanks house fish. So Doug has tilapia. So he's got a room about half the size of this room with two long rows of tables. It's, it's in being built right now, but there'll be tanks of tilapia, if you can imagine that, underneath. And then trays of vegetables above that. So what happens is this. It's really, it's, it's, it's very cool. The fish, of course, poop. So the fish poop, then, is cycled by water up into the vegetables and becomes organic fertilizer, feeding the vegetables. The water then filters down through the gravel, becoming clean again, and goes back into the tanks. So one, it's totally organic. Two, you don't need any, you don't, it's, you conserve water because the same water filters through and through over and over again. You grow vegetables and protein and, and, and literally, literally can feed an entire community with a greenhouse about the size of half of this room. It's pretty amazing. So that's the kind of stuff that Doug's about and doing. And so again, he's not a church or a church plant, but we have the opportunity to partner with Doug and work with him to reach some of the churches and communities that the churches are in that we're working with. In addition, Forward Edge is a missions organization here uh, in, in Vancouver, actually. Uh, I've shared with you a little bit about the dump in Managua and Esperanza, the, the girls' home, that where this, these guys take uh, girls that have been raised in the dump, and they help rehabilitate them. And so we've had opportunity to work with them. And then a, another guy, and this is really interesting, Jeff Brazier, uh, actually also attends a vineyard church in St. Louis. Um, but his ministry is his own, uh, his own corporation. He... Uh, called me about three years ago, Global Village Project, what they do is they're focused on education and literacy. So they help schools in different countries of the world. He called me because he found my name on the Vineyard Missions website. Um, he goes to a vineyard church and says, hey, I'm interested in Nicaragua. Do you know anybody that has a school there? Yes, I do. Uh, one of our churches has a school there. Well, I put him in touch with them. So since then, Jeff has made four trips down. They've worked with the Lavinia Norte with the Tippy Tapa Church Plant and with the Bluefields Church, not only providing school supplies, but, but helping fund building projects that will house schools at those different churches. So again, not a church planter per se, but working with us to develop the ministries that we're doing there. And then one of the most exciting things that's happened thus far is this year uh, we will add not only Boise Vineyard, but Tri Robinson's organization, I-61, I-61 is, you need to go on their website and look. I can't explain it to you in a few minutes, but basically they'll do everything from clean water, environmental impact, um, health care. I mean, they, they, they really do everything. I mean, again, we, we're walking around the property at the Bluefields Church, and right next door it borders a whole community, a very, very impoverished community of people that are essentially squatters. They just It's open land. They come in, they build a shack, they live there. And so Tri says, where do these people get water? And Norman says, well, a pipe. Where does the pipe come from? Well, it comes from the town, but they just sort of take the pipe, and they all get water of the pipe. Is it clean? No. But they drink it anyway. 
Christ says, for $500, I could bring a gravity sand filter in here and filter the water for that whole community. So that's item one on his agenda, is to bring clean water into this community. So again, their hope is to build a, um, they, they actually want, talk about different organizations connecting. Arms of Love owns a house in Managua that they're not using currently. Tri wants to rent the house from them and build a base there for his VCOM students, which will be a, become a base for us to send teams out into the whole country. So that's kind of the um, plan uh, as they get involved with what we're doing. And he's, he's totally, totally committed to working through the local churches there. So it'll be, again, a support to what we're doing already. So that's a little bit of what's happening. Let me just real quick, and I'll move fast through this. I know I'm taking a long time tonight. But our philosophy of ministry is this. I think the typical missions philosophy is to go as a teacher and a servant and we, we come to serve, right? But at the end of the day, when you serve, you walk away and say, well, this is what we did for you. And you come back and you say, how we help these people. Our philosophy is to go as students and friends. Um, what we learned and shared together. And everything we do works on that premise. We don't come in saying, we know how to do this. You don't let us show you. We come in and say, hey, what's happening? How can we get involved? Is there anything we can do? We just want to be your friends. It took a long time. It took a long time to establish that. It really did. Uh, it was probably five, six, seven trips in before they really began to look at me as a friend and say, okay, this guy's come back. He really is our friend. He means what he says. And so now I've been there, I think, 11 or 12 times, and uh, we have established a, a, a real solid, solid relationship that we're building uh, the basis of what we do together on. And they've learned that I, I don't come with all the answers. I come just to be your friend and to help and grow together. So it's really a, a, a unique philosophy of ministry. So what happens next? Where do we go from here? Let me close with uh, this, and then I'll show you a few pictures from our trip. A um, few things I think need to happen. One is keep the goal in sight. Uh, our goal is to develop a self-sustained church planting movement, that one day they will be able to continue the work uh, without our involvement. And that seems like a, an impossibility because of the financial situation there, but I don't believe it is. I believe that it can actually happen, and so we will continue to work uh, to that end and to that goal uh, for the next few years at least. Continue and expand the develop network relationships. God has just brought people, just brought people. Um, and, it, and he just continued people. And so we just want to see that network of relationships continue to expand. I, I mean, you know, two, two years ago, three, two, three years ago now, we uh, invited Tri Robinson to go with us to speak at the national conference. He'd never been and uh, almost didn't go. He was very, very busy, had a hectic schedule. I called him. I said, try, I'd like you to go and speak at the national conference in Nicaragua with us. Looked at his schedule, thought I can't do it. And the Spirit of God just said, no, I think you should go. So he actually canceled another engagement to go with us to Nicaragua. And God gri gripped his heart. So he's committed. And he's put the you know, the resource of Boise Vineyard and I-61 behind that now. And it's just, that's the kind of stuff that happens. That's what God's doing. This guy, Jeff Brazier, I mean, he called me out of the blue, didn't know me from anybody. He goes, I just saw your name on our website. Can I help? And so we just want to continue to see that network of relationships expand. Continue to explore BAM opportunities. BAM is business's mission. And what it means, really, and it's, it's a movement in mission, missiology and in missions across the world right now where creating business opportunities to generate income in country. So we've looked at things like plastics, recycling, exporting coffee. We've done some microfinance already. We want to continue that because 
if, if this work will ever be sustaining, it needs to be able to generate income, and we can create jobs for people on site. So that's, that's a big part of what we hope to do in the years ahead to see the church planting continue. Uh, last thing is kind of the vineyard uh, motto there, recruit, train, and deploy, to continue to raise up indigenous leadership. Um, we, we met with two couples that are potential church planters while we were on this trip this last couple weeks. Uh, but we also, again, they're um, releasing ministry is an interesting thing because it's a very traditional culture. And so when we first started going, most of the leadership of all the churches is older. I'm looking around, there's all these young people in these churches, but they don't know how to release them in leadership. So we've tried to just say, hey, you know, you, you've got to raise up some of these young kids and let them do it. So we actually met with some of the young guys and, and with some of the leaders of the pastors and talked to them about that. And it looks like in the future we're going to try to plant some churches with young guys in their 20s. A young man there, a fantastic young man, just the highest quality guy you've ever met, actually grew up in the orphanage, Arms of Love, and, and has gone on to university. Um, but we talked with him this, this week, and um, we just asked him point blank, have you ever thought about being a vineyard pastor? He goes, yeah. So, well, do you want to? He said, yeah. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things where, you know, you can't do that. You can't make that happen. God just does that on your own. So continue to raise up leaders in country. And then what I want to share with you guys is we'll go back next summer. We'll have our third national conference. Um, it'll be on the East Coast. We've never done a conference on the East Coast. But part of what God's done is build relationship in country. And the guys in the West Coast just said, we're going to take it to them. They've come here every year. We're going to go to them. I told you, you can only get there by boat or by plane. There's no roads. It's going to be a logistical nightmare to get everybody over to the East Coast. But they're committed to doing it. And I sat down with all of them this year, and I said, are you serious? Are you serious you want to do it? They go, yes. There's no way we're not doing it. So I would encourage you guys to save your pennies and apply for your passport. The dates of the conference tentatively right now are August 1st through 3rd, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We will leave on the 27th, go early, and help prepare the church in Bluefields for the conference and um, bring a, you know, a team with us for that. So I'd like you guys to consider possibly joining us next summer for that. Let me uh, really quick, I'm going to show you a few pictures, and then we'll close. This is Norman and Marta. You can't, you can't, can you see it at all? Can you tell? Uh, oh, turn the lights off. Okay. Good thinking. Is that better? The couple there is Norman and Marta Ellis. They are our pastors in Bluefields. Just tremendous, tremendous folks, down-to-earth, amazing, amazing people. That's their property. They have a three-acre parcel of land that was actually Marta inherited from her family. Their home, the church, and the school building are all on the same piece of property. Uh, that's their daycare center. That's how they generate income right now. There's babies in all those cribs. Um, but they, they generate income by watching children for single moms and other people in their community that are working. That's their school building. It's behind the church, and they're building that right now. It's been funded largely by uh, Global Village Outreach and the Lake Charles Vineyard, who works with us, have basically funded that project. That's Marta and her granddaughter. They, that's our lunch. They cooked lunch for us and had us in their home to eat with them, some of the kids in their church. Uh, the, the guy on the right there is Doug Effinger. This is the property they told you about where he's uh, building a community center. That's his septic tank. That's Steve Fish's head in a septic tank. I don't know why, but he thought that was a good idea. 
Um, in any case, uh, Doug's the one in Hiotepe that's doing the hydroponics and uh, discipling those kids and helping them get jobs. It's one of our churches in Managua. Um, new building, they just leased that this past year. Uh, it looks huge, but actually they have uh, one room in the front that's about this big. That's all they have. The rest of it is a big, empty warehouse that's unsafe to enter, so there's a wall and then it ends. Uh, but that, that's it. This is their children's ministry. So if you think we have it bad, uh, they meet outside. Uh, that's just a wall with graffiti. There's razor wire across the top of the wall, and that's the Sunday school teacher there doing uh, the kids' ministry. This is the other vineyard in, Managua, in Managua, La Vina Norte, uh, they, that meets on a main street. You, can, you can't really tell, but there's a fence across the front with, again, razor wire around the top of that to prevent break-ins. That's their worship team getting ready to, to go in their church. I wish you could see that a little better. Uh, that's tippy-top of the outreach there with the kids. Again, the young lady teaching is named Deborah. She's fantastic, 20 years old, just a uh, great, great Bible teacher. Uses a flannel board, you know, like 1972. Just does the Bible story on the flower board. Uh, la- last year I, when we were there, they were doing a Bible story of David and Goliath, and I got to be Goliath. It was one of the most fun things I ever did. Um, uh, we pr- this is one of the two gentlemen that were there that day. Again, mostly kids and, and women. But this older guy, I think, just wandered in. I don't think he knew what he was getting into, but we prayed for him after the service. Um, and that's kind of what's happening in Nicaragua. So there you go. Uh, I'd love to see some of you be able to join us in the next uh, year or two go with us. Why don't you come on up, Jeremy, and let's just give me some background music, okay? Just so you know. Um, why don't you guys stand? I want to pray for you tonight, and then uh, we'll ask the ministry team to come and pray for anybody who would like personal prayer. It just, for me, it always renews my heart to get out of my environment a little bit. And I realize I was just out of my environment, and you weren't. But just like God would begin to open our eyes and hearts and give us that sort of missional heart again, whether it's locally, our neighborhoods, our community, or whether it's in Nicaragua or maybe somewhere else. But I just want to ask, uh, Lord, would you renew our hearts and remind us why we're here? Would you remind us afresh tonight that uh, this isn't a self-help program? that our help and our growth comes as we extend the uh, heart of Jesus and the kingdom of God to those poor and oppressed people that need a touch from you and that have no hope except